Hello, this is the Vanguard Court Watch podcast. I'm your host, David Greenwald. Right now, Vanguard Court Watch operates in three counties in California, including San Francisco and Sacramento. Our goal is to shine a light on ordinary injustice in the court system. This podcast is hoping to go a step further and shine a spotlight on criminal justice reforms on the national level. In 1995, Obi Anthony was 19 years old when he was convicted of murder and attempted robbery. Despite no physical evidence connecting him to the crime, prosecutors relied on testimony from an informant, a convicted killer and a pimp who ran a house of prostitution near the scene of the crime and who claimed to have seen the shooter. In 2008, the Northern California Innocence Project, working with Loyola's Project for the Innocents, took on his case. The court would end up vacating Anthony's conviction on September 30, 2011, after an 11-day evidentiary hearing. After 17 years in prison, Anthony was released on October 4, 2011, and prosecutors dismissed the charges November 18, 2011. In August of 2012, Anthony filed a federal civil rights lawsuit against the city of Los Angeles, which agreed to settle the claim in 2015 for $8.3 million. Obi Anthony was also awarded compensation by the state of California in the amount of $581,000. Obi Anthony has become an activist and used his lawsuit to create Exonerated Nation. Welcome to our show, Obi Anthony. How are you doing? Good. Um, so I think it's really important for people to uh, gain an understanding of what happened in your case. Um, how did you come to be identified as one of the shooters in the case and then convicted despite the lack of evidence? Well, it was a series of different things that transpired during the course of the uh, initial investigation of my case. With that, the, uh, how can I say the lead or the lead or the training investigated officer in Marcelo Reyes in respect to identification. And at that time, you have to understand that, that in regards to identification process, that the best practice wasn't in place, and they were they were utilizing the six pack. And so what they had did was uh, they had you know my six pack my, my photo in the six pack array was a little bit lighter than everyone else's. And they had all, and it also gave information to an informant who they was working with, by the name of John Jones, uh, to uh, make that identification. So not only were they working out with an informant uh, to do that identification, but they secured it, but they made sure he identified that by the lighting of the photograph and some other things that transpired during the course of that. And we had, you know, in my case, also uh, cross-racial identification, which was also difficult. Uh, for the for the victim slash witness in our case, even though in the front of very onset he had made the, the initial statement to the cops that he you know he that I only looked at like a guy, not that I was a guy, but I looked at like a guy. And so, and even with that statement, they still continue to push forward with the investigation, even though they really didn't have any reliable identification. And you ended up spending seventeen years in prison. Yes, uh, they gave me life without the possibility of parole plus 50 years. We sought the death penalty, and then and then they initially took the death penalty off the table, and then sought life without, and they sentenced me to 
life without the party of parole plus 50 years. And and what was it like to be in prison uh, knowing that you hadn't done anything? I mean, it's a difficult ordeal. I mean, like, you got that inner battle, that inner battle within yourself, right? Right to stay strong and not give up on the situation, understanding that you're up against them. A mountain, you're just an ant. You have to get up the hill, and you, you have this never give up attitude about it. And so, but at the same time, though, you, the terrain is rough. Uh, and so, as you climb the hill, you have to protect yourself, realizing that the environment is a hostile environment, and it always, it's every single day. I like, you know, the analogy always, I mean, the question I always ask people is this is that when you went to the refrigerator or to the bathroom or took a shower, were you concerned about were you concerned about losing your life, concerned about being home? And you said absolutely not. They just went to the shower or they just went to the kitchen and got something to eat. And so those things but for me, every single day of my life for seventeen years was that way. I couldn't go to the shower without being concerned about someone trying to attack me. I couldn't go to the go get some water or without their concern. Or even going to the medical facility, in other words, to get treatment for ailments. I had to be concerned about my life every single day. And how did you make it through all of that? Because it sounds like it would be very difficult through 17 years of that. I mean, uh, I mean, you have to have, you have, you know, I mean, you have to have that never give up attitude. You have to have, you know, and, and, and what supports that, the foundation, the four corners of that never giving up, is the fact that you're innocent and you know that you are. And in your mind, that is the hope, in other words, that, that is your resolve at the end of the day, that somehow or another, truth will come out, you will be exonerated and come home, and you'll be able to have the opportunity, in other words, to do the things that everyone else is doing, and also rebuild the relationships with your family members. How old were you when you got out? I was 37 years old when I got out. I went in when I was... So just... Just the fact that you went from being basically a kid to being an adult must have been a huge transition. In a different world. You have to understand that, right? It's not the world that everyone that everyone out here wants to it's not the regular transition. You know what I mean? Like it's not the other it's, it's a different world. Right. And so uh the regular societal affairs of everyone that in, in, in the community is out here in the society is is to do those things. They, they're, not, they're not concerned with losing their life. They're not concerned with, you know, how I'm going to get out of here. How am I going to be? How am I going to be when I get out? They're not concerned with none of those things because they're already out here. And it's just a totally different environment in there, in that world. It's a, it's a, it is literally eat or be eaten, survive or die. And people get harmed and die in there every single day. And no one realizes and understands those things because Again, if, if it never makes the news and no one in the CDC doesn't report those, the CDCR doesn't report those things, or in or they, they, they put it in a situation where they sweep it under the rug to make it less than what it really is. An example of that is Anad John Alexander, which is an individual who's incarcerated, who has claims of innocence, and who has been advocating for those things for over several years now. And that's an example of that. He has been harmed in prison, and, and the CDCR has swept it under the rug. And so we have to realize that those things happen in that world. Out here, you can't commit a crime without those things being on the news, someone reporting it, and then getting out there. And so that is the difference between the world and understanding for that individual that is innocent to come back out here 
his awareness is so heightened. He's so just, just so just concerned about everything. You have to look about. You have to be concerned about homes. If he can't get into a home, how's he gonna live? The dangers in the streets. The dangers everywhere. Everywhere is a danger because he's been in, in another world. So, can you tell us about how it came to be that you were exonerated? I mean, it's a story, another word that has not often been told. But it's the, these are the facts. And of my exoneration, which is this. And so I, I had a co-defendant that also was falsely accused and put in, in prison for a crime he didn't commit. And he spent 16 years in there fighting for his innocence before he was exonerated. And during the course of that time, he was being bullied by a well-known bully throughout all 37 prisons in the state of California at the time. And this guy, and he defended himself one day, and the bully died. And it's because of that, because Reggie Cole was charged with the death penalty for committing a crime, a murder, we are innocent, that our innocence has been proven. And that's the only reason why I stand here today. It's because he had a lawyer by the name of Christopher Plourd and Ever Rivera, who began to start reinvestigating his initial case, of which was put him in prison, that gave him the opportunity to charge him with the death penalty because he was in there already with life without. And so they began to start investigating and discovered that not only was Reggie Cole innocent, but in fact that he had been framed. And that there opened the door for me to then reach out to the Northern California Innocent Project, who at the time, because they was in the northern part of California, they had to investigate a case down in the southern part of California. That miraculously, at the same time that that was transpiring, that Loyola Marymount had begun the project for the industry. And I was their first person that they began to start reinvestigating the case. And my exoneration came through them and because of it. And a lot of people don't understand the significance of that. Because, like I said before, people get stabbed and get jumped on and get hurt in prison every single day, and they do not die. The individual that committed the assault goes to the home, may get charged by the district attorney or may not, and that's not with that. But because this guy died, it's the only reason why I had a chance to prove my innocence. And I'm in another institution. I'm in Corcoran, he's down in Calipatria State Prison. I'm in the mid of California, and he's down in the far most end of the southern part of California. And these things are transpiring with him down at this institution, unbeknownst to me. I was a, my, my case was already exhausted through all of the remedies in which I could possibly exhaust. I couldn't go through no more appeals. After the fact that these things transpired. And so I like I tell that story because people need to understand that people suffer in prison innocently. And those things that happened to Reggie Cole happened to innocent in there. That's really incredible story. So based on their reinvestigation, uh you're able to get this case to go forward. And then three yeah. years later, I think um, you end three up and uh, three and a half. Uh, you end up being exonerated. 
Yeah. Which was a whole other ordeal, correct? I mean, like realizing that now that, that these individuals, that the court has your case within their hands and they're looking at it and you're anticipating your exoneration. So you have to go through three, one year, two years, three years, three and a half years before they answer to say that in fact that you can possibly come down to seek battles. And as this is going on, are you thinking, okay, I'm going to get out, or are you thinking, no, this is just not going to happen? Man, no, absolutely, right? But when, you, when you're innocent and, and you realize that now that someone is looking at that, the, the blessing of the Creator is to hold us realize in that moment, and you know that you're getting out. You know that you're getting out. And so you begin to start preparing, and you move towards that, and you realize that you understand and appreciate it. And see, that there is why you find they don't read. They come home to do the things that they're doing. They advocate. They run nonprofits. They become investigators, lawyers. They get involved within a community. And it becomes that which what they always have, always could have been after the fact that they were removed from a community, which they should never have. So when did you decide to create Exonerated Nation? Crazy story, bro. So it was a uh, 2012 act. Uh, we were at a conference, I believe it was six, and we were all gathering in the room, several of us, uh, and having a conversation in respect to what was transpiring in a different space with different economies. And at that moment, I had I, I, it was it was a feeling of emotion that I had, and I made a statement that we're not these separate states that you're that you're talking about. It's not California exonerees. It's not New York exonerees. It's not Texas exonerees. We are an exonerated nation. We are a community that is well over 2,000 individuals. We are a nation. We are our own community. We cannot, those individuals, we are a part of a fraternity in which we did not choose to go to school to become part of. And because of it, every single one of us suffer across this nation. And I think a lot of I think a lot of people think, okay, you get out and it's kind of like the fairy tale, right? Uh, And you live happily ever after. And that's just not the reality of it, is it? Absolutely not. Because I'm not going to be taken to prison in 1994 where technology was a cell phone looking like a, a booth that you carried around. <laughs> to come home to where it is now smaller than your hand and you can literally, it's literally a computer where you can communicate with different individuals around the world. It's a shock. And not only is it a shock, but it's a fear that's attached to that shock because I don't know nothing about this. I can't put an application online. I can't. I don't even know what Florida is. Well, how do we get on? And so it becomes another difficulty. In other words, to become successful, but then after another, after one struggle already of being falsely accused and put in prison for a crime you committed, then you come home to an environment that you have no knowledge of financially, educationally, no home, no no mental health. 
And so we started to so I started to generate things up. That was my situation. And I, and I talked and I heard those things other individuals that have been claimed to prison. And so I started to generate a nation. I started talking about those things and it officially became a nonprofit of follow one C three state and federal uh, in two thousand fifteen. And I don't think a lot of people understand that when you get released, if you have served your time for a crime, you get like two hundred dollars of gate money and you get access to all these services. When you get released and you've been exonerated, you get nothing. No, fuck. Because the education in which they were given in respect to that. And so they believe that, oh, you're innocent, that they have to automatically do these things. No, it's a fight. It took me five years before I was complicated, after I was exonerated. I got exonerated in 2011. And, they, and I wasn't compensated for that wrongful conviction until five years later. And so we have to understand that time, that that's an additional. So not only is it 17 years, but it's five years on top of that I'm continuing to fight. That's a total of 23 years. And so we have been, and I don't know whether or not people really understand the hold on a person's life in the condition in which that happens to that individual when you cut them loose. It's almost like having a domesticated animal within your house for, all for multiple years and then sending them out to the wild. You know that that animal is going to die because he has not none of the things, in other words, that's going to help him survive because he's been domesticated. Well, they didn't domesticate us. They claimed us and gave us prison traumatic stress. Hyper-awareness cancer, and all other sources, and put us back into a community that looks at us because we have been in prison. And the way, in other words, that is the pain. Like, you've been in prison? And then when you tell them that you're innocent and was in prison, they automatically assume that you come home under uh, some sort of technicality and your innocence is still in question. So, yeah, we go through a lot of stuff multiple years after the generation. And California lacks any kind of regular compensation. There's some states that at least have some laws that provide uh, for compensation for the years spent, but California doesn't have anything, right? Well, no, California does have a compensation package. It's not an automatic compensation, but nevertheless, they are part of the, the states that does have compensation in place. Because you do have places that does not. Places like New Orleans, uh, places like Missouri, uh, St. Louis. And so California has taken major steps in regards to uh, rectifying the situation in regards to the 204 individuals who've been framed and put in prison in the state of California. They put in place AB 672 which they renamed Obi's Law. They also put in place AB 1050, and they are now putting in front of the governor AB 701 and 703, which calls for uh, help with housing and also free education. And so California is doing those things as necessary. They've also put in place a conviction integrity unit, and they also put in place 
convicted of a felony for the state of California for prosecutors that withhold evidence against a crushing enemy. And so they're doing the things that's necessary. Though compensation is automatic, it's not automatic. But nevertheless, we hope it's been open inspired. In other words, that California will definitely move towards that. I see. Um, and can you describe some of the work that Exonerated Nation does on behalf of exonerees? Well, Exonerated Nation, uh, we, we not only apply uh, uh, temporary housing, uh, but also leadership development. We have a holistic healing program that we have, and we also have, uh, we also have a temporary job. Uh, we, we were being blessed. We receive a we receive a grant from Kaiser to do capacity building because they believe in our mission. They believe in exoneration and the mission. In other words, that we seek after, and they bless us with a grant. In other words, to, to fulfill that to fulfill that mission. And so we're excited about that. We also excited about the fact that we have great partnership also with individual with other entities such as select staff that helps us with temporary job placement. And we reach out to other organizations, in other words, to connect the done read that need help with housing to effectuate those things. And so we're excited about the community stepping up and doing the things that Kevin Terry realizes that individuals are suffering from crime in which they commit to help those guys and gals to reintegrate themselves back into a community which they realize is already in their own country. But nevertheless, trying to get all these visits to put up. What can people do to help? Uh, what do you guys need? Donations. We need donations. The Exonerated Nation needs to continue the work that we're doing. And, and the way to do that, the only way to do that, we, we need donations. We also need the support of the community. We need those individuals out there in the community that has concerns about individuals being in the prison prison. To have that, have that conversation inside their churches, have that conversation in their community with their family members, so that they can be aware, and not only be aware, but also educate other individuals. So, somebody who wants to help you guys, where can they go? They can go to exoneratednation.org, and they can find and they can see there not only the work that we're doing, but other ways that they can, they can help inside that work. Now, I want to ask you about this. Um, you had mentioned Anand John. Uh, can, can you talk briefly about his case and w- what you're doing to help him? I mean, so, uh, so I've been home uh, going on eight years. Uh, I've come in contact with Anand John maybe uh, six, seven years ago. And uh, his case is similar to my case where you have a fact of prosecutorial misconduct that has transpired was inside his case, and so I have, you know, and so I advocate because not only, not only for him, but others that people say have suffered through four wrongs, two wrongs, uh, not only wrongs convictions, but from prosecutorial misconduct. And so uh, that's, and that is our connection there, and I believe in the difference. I think the young man is innocent. I've had a chance to meet his sister, had a chance to talk with his mom. Not only do they believe and advocate for, those, for him, but they do it at a, at, at a sacrifice. And that's what people have to understand. That when someone is innocently in prison, that is a sacrifice to the community because it affects the family, it affects the opportunity, in other words, that that individual can create within inside that community. And so I advocate for him and I talk about him when I have an opportunity. Are there other uh, people that are currently in prison that you're working with? 
at this point, uh, there are several other uh, individuals that have reached out to Exonerated Nation for Exonerated Nation support. And it, as I always express to them, that Exonerated Nation existence is to help with the victims that have been exonerated. And, and so we, we have an opportunity, in other words, to connect them with the victims to help them seek their innocence to, to, to secure those things. That, that, uh, that is our functionality. And so I have become aware of a, of a plethora of individuals that have have sought it and that are seeking their interest by through that. Were you going to talk about any of them? Well, those are the, I mean, like a few of those individuals, I'm just not that aware of their case, so I, have, I can't speak about those things, and I can't speak about them in that manner. Uh, but because I have a, a little familiarity with John Alexander, I can't talk about them. I see. Okay. Um, well, that's all we have time for today. Thank you for being on our show. Absolutely. It was a pleasure. And I definitely appreciate the opportunity. Thank you, and good luck with Exonerated Nation. Thank you very much. That was Obi Anthony, who talked about his remarkable story of uh, almost by accident. His case comes up because another guy is facing murder charges in prison, and they end up exonerating both men. Uh, He spent 17 years in prison for a crime that he didn't commit, but he's giving back to his community, and he's trying to help other people who are wrongfully convicted get back on their feet through his work at Exonerated Nation. This has been the Vanguard Court Watch podcast. I am your host, David Greenwald. Thank you, and until next time, have a good one.